I'm Ryan Pyle, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Brazil just, you know, seems to be this massive country that's spectacular, and I wanted to kind of travel all the way around it by motorcycle. Ryan Pyle, Tough Rides, Brazil. I have seven land speed records. Valerie Thompson, 217.7 mile per hour. Yeah, Valerie Thompson, top speed, 217.7 miles per hour. BMW S1000RR. My name is Jonathan Gibson. It was 27,000 kilometers, and I believe it was 490 days on the road from Sydney to London. Jonathan Gibson, Ryan Pyle, and Valerie Thompson all cross the finish line on this episode of Adventure Rider Radio. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob B. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coates. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I'm Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Russ. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler. <laughs> this is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and we got a packed show for you today. Ryan Pyle's coming by to talk about his trip around Brazil. He circumnavigated Brazil for his latest TV series called Tough Rides. We've got Valerie Thompson, seven-time world speed record holder, 217.7 miles per hour. She's going to talk about what it's like to go really, really fast on a motorcycle. And Jonathan Gibson has returned from his trip. You remember, Jonathan, the last time we spoke with him, he was in Mumbai, India. He has now returned, arriving safe and sound at the Ace Cafe in London, England, after traversing from Sydney to London on his 1969 Royal Enfield, which needed a lot of help to get there. Stay with us. we got a lot more coming up. <laughs> This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. You can also sign up for free for their weekly e-rider newsletter at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Moto Machines offers luggage systems, protection, windshields, custom ABS plastic parts, and more for over 700 different models dating back to the 1970s. Moto Machines carries the widest selection of luggage available on the market, and all accessories are bolt-on ready for a custom fit. Visit them at motomachines.com. That's motomachines.com. Well, I'm with Ryan Pyle. Ryan is a, an adventurer, a television presenter, public speaker, and a producer. And uh, he's well known for his um, television programs that take motorcycling to the extreme. Ryan, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much for having me. 
So Ryan, I know that uh, I've, I've seen the press releases. I know you're back. You have went to Brazil and I think ridden completely around Brazil for a new upcoming series. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'd previously done journeys around China and India, and I'd never been to South America before, and Brazil just, you know, seems to be this massive country that's spectacular, and I wanted to kind of travel all the way around it by motorcycle, uh, a full circumnavigation, which was going to be about 10,000 miles, and uh, we planned out a journey, and we went out in March 2015, so just a few months ago, and spent 60 days uh, exploring kind of every corner of Brazil by motorcycle. And I was on my uh, trusty BMW F800 GS, which uh, is kind of my bike of choice for all these adventures. And it went off without a hitch, and we had a really challenging time in in parts of Brazil, and in other parts it was um, very leisurely and and quite lovely. So our our journey kind of has the best and worst of of any motorcycle adventure that uh, experience people are looking for. On this trip, you went by yourself, because I know in the past you had your brother come with you uh, for the circumnavigation of China. Um, this one's on your own, you and your film crew. How was that as, as a change? Well, it's a, it's a different dynamic, uh, for sure. Obviously, it's great to be out on the road with my brother, um, but his life is uh, getting much more serious. He's, he's expecting his first son uh, this week in London. And, uh, and just wasn't up for an, another journey in Brazil. And I really wanted to take the series forward. And doing it on my own was, was very challenging. You know, when you're on a bike, it's great to have company. You know, misery loves company. And uh, some days when you're in, you know, stuck in knee-deep mud in the Amazon and it's raining on you, it's, it's always very comforting to look back or, or look in front of you and see someone suffering in, in the mud the same way you are. But, but it wasn't. It was just me. So it was a bit of a psychological shift. But, but we did get through it. And... Um, and it was uh, it was an incredible journey. So you, you spent sixty days doing this. Was that all ride time? Uh, yeah, it was pretty much all ride time. Every day we were kind of on the road for about ten hours, ten sometimes twelve. Um, and you know we had the odd off day. A couple guys got sick every now and then, but but pretty much every day riding, and um, and just that constant flow and feel of moving and, and progress and and excitement, you know, it just becomes addictive. You just get addicted to moving. You get addicted to seeing something new every day and, and the, you know, the miles just keep blowing past and you don't even really think about it. You just want to see, you know, what's around the next corner or what's over the next mountain. That's what really drives me on these long journeys. When you set out the route, was there a reason that you did the route you did or was it uh, uh, just a, a way to go around the outside of Brazil? Well, we always try to, I always try to do like a circumnavigation. I, I quite like um, doing big circles and I also quite like starting and finishing in the same location because that gives my journey a lot of closure. So when we were planning out the journey in Brazil, uh, I wanted to start and finish on Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro. So on day one, we started um, right there in front of the Copacabana Beach Hotel, which is a famous landmark in Rio de Janeiro. And then we headed north and and I wanted to head north uh, right away so that we could get up and into the Amazon kind of as quickly as possible because we were kind of on the edge of what would have been the rainy season. Um, you know, and that's that's a real naive thing for me to admit because it just rains all the time every, all year in the Amazon. So it, it doesn't really matter if you go in the rainy season or not, you're going to get rained on. Um, but I kind of thought like, oh, well, it's the rainy season, the roads are going to be much worse and all this kind of stuff. So we were trying to get through... Um, 
through that Amazon bit quite quickly. So we went north up the eastern coast to Salvador, Natal, and then I uh, went in through the Amazon basin along Teresina, along the Trans-Amazonian Highway. And then when we got to Santarim, you know, that's where the road kind of runs out in Para State, man. We had to take um, a car a car ferry along the Amazon River uh, in order to get to Manaus. And then from Manaus, which is the capital of Amazonia province, that's where we... Uh, you know, took this BR319 highway, which ended up being um, easily the worst road I've ever been on in my life. And we were averaging kind of 30 miles a day uh, on 12-hour days um, for about 10 days in, in the middle of the Amazon. It was just uh, grueling. And then finally, once we got out of the Amazon, uh, things were much more civilized and we made it back around to Rio de Janeiro without too much incident. Did you count on that, the, being that tough, where you're down to, to 30 miles a day? Uh, we knew it was going to be tough, and we talked to some people, some local Brazilian guys that do this kind of thing in their in their souped-up SUVs and 4x4s, and they're like, oh, you're not going to make it on a motorcycle. And I've heard that a lot in my life, and, and I guess I said, well, you know, I've heard the same in China, I've heard the same in India, I'm going to go for it anyways. Uh, but this was actually really much tougher than anything in China and India. And uh, the Brazilian people, when they say something's tough, it's really quite tough. It's, uh, you should definitely listen to um, Brazilians and their road advice because this was hard. Uh, left me in tears, you know, most days. You, it's just nonstop knee-deep, you know, mud for, um, for about four or 500 miles. And being in the Amazon... Um, it was about, I know in Celsius, it was about 35 degrees Celsius every day. It's well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit every day and raining. Um, and uh, and it just was, you know, really kind of nasty conditions uh, and, and feeling really isolated too. I think that the psychological effect of, of being in the middle of a jungle and not having any mobile phone access and, and not having any towns. There were no towns on this. Uh, there's about 800-mile stretch where there's no towns, no gas stations no villages uh, and no mobile phone access. And that was where the toughest bit was. So you really feel like you're, you're out there on your own. And it ended up being kind of one of our strongest sections for filming because you see this psychological change, you see this isolation uh, and combined with having to deal with really, really nasty roads, um, you know, just trying to survive everything that Brazil throws at you. Well, of course, as soon as you say you're reduced to tears and, and stressed out, all of a sudden the, the ante goes up on this and you think, okay, this is something I want to see now <laughs> because yeah. adversity does that, right? It, it makes our story. Just to give the listener an idea, I mean, you're filming this for the Travel Channel and it's available on Netflix and Hulu and, and iTunes and different places. So it's it's a production. It's, it's a fairly big thing. Give us an idea of the size of your crew and what they're doing while you're slugging it out in the mud. Sure. So I work with uh, I work with uh, at least two other people. So it's myself and uh, and two cameramen, and one of the cameramen will drive. So it's the three of us: um, one motorcycle, me, and and two guys in the car. Uh, and and what they basically do do is they just um, follow me. You know, sometimes they're up ahead of me, you know, waiting for me to come around that perfect corner. Uh, sometimes they're you know, behind me waiting to see if I'll fall uh, in the mud and then and then they'll be jumping out and, and watching me try to pull myself out of it. And, and you know, it's, uh, and they just watch, they just watch the, you know, the, the 50 shades of colors that come across my face every day, depending on what happens. You know, some days you're doing four or 500 miles a day on great road and it's, you know, pretty easy going and you're stopping chatting with people at gas stations and you got a big smile on your face. And then other days you're doing 30, 
uh, miles a day in, you know, knee deep mud and, and it's just soul destroying. Uh, and they're right there kind of filming, filming my process, uh, and my interactions and, and my feelings on a, on a daily basis. And, um, you know, they had air conditioning in the car and stuff like that. So their journey was, wasn't quite as, as rough as mine, uh, especially in the Amazon where I was exposed to uh, all the elements. Well, that's the interesting thing now, because often when people watch a, a program like this, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, but he's got the cameraman there. So so let's get this clear. You, you're you on this trip. You're struggling. Do you have some sort of check in place where you say, before you head out, you say to the cameraman, okay, look, it's a hands-off thing. No matter what I go through, I'm totally on my own. You guys um, cannot help. And no matter how much you demand, I mean, you're sort of the boss when you're out there. So, I mean, you, you know, you, you've got a certain amount of pull. But has this already worked out in advance where you say to them, look at there is a, there's no help. Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, obviously safety is first. So, you know, if I have a horrible fall, uh, you know, the guys will be there, you know, to help out. Um, but you know, there was, there was one great, there was one great moment in the Amazon where I went right over my handlebars, um, and, and, uh, and came out and, and, and my guys came out and they were both just standing there filming. <laughs> it was, and it was fantastic. <laughs> like, okay guys, I'm fine. And, uh, uh, but you know, their first instinct is always to film just to make sure that they can capture everything, um, that happens. But obviously if there's anything serious that happens or whatever, then it's always good to have two people, uh, you know, who can, who can help lift a bike out of a huge ditch or, or, um, or help lift a bike onto a passing truck that will, uh, that, you know, in case I need to have some repairs done or something like that. So I wouldn't say it's a completely hands-off experience. They're definitely there. Um, you know, and, and I, and I would say even too, that going through the Amazon as a solo motorcycle rider is an incredibly dangerous, uh, thing. I mean, you either need to have another rider there with you, uh, or at least, uh, a vehicle, um, because it's just so dangerous. And I would even say a vehicle is mandatory because you have to carry so much extra fuel with you, um, because it's so much, uh, it's such a distance between, uh, fuel stops. Well, you're riding the F800 GS Adventure. So, so that's a, a, you know, fairly new bike. I know you didn't have that on, uh, your China ride. That was just an F800 GS. Did you notice a big difference between the two? I did notice a big difference. You know, the Adventures are really nice uh, addition to the to the GS lineup. It's a little bit more like the 1200. Uh, a lot of people always ask me, like, how come you don't use the 1200 GS? And it's because I end up in places like the Amazon. You know, I love the big front wheel on, on the F800 GS Adventure. I love the higher suspension on the F800 GS Adventure. And it's a lighter bike. Um, you know, it's not as technologically advanced. It doesn't have the, you know, suspension automation and all this other stuff that the 1200 GS has. But it's it's a more simple bike and it's a higher bike. And I'm a tall rider. I'm about six foot three. So, so I really enjoy I really enjoy the ride on the F800 and and the Adventure. The real key for the Adventure for me is the larger gas tank. So the the original F800, it had um, it had a much smaller gas tank. I only know the liters. I can't remember the gallons. It was like 15 liters or 16 liters on the original F800, and the new one's got um, about 50 or 60 percent more fuel capacity, which is obviously great when you're doing these long, long treks. And when you're riding along there, you're not carrying your gear with you. I assume that you're riding the bike empty. Yeah, I'm riding the bike pretty empty. You know, I've got some pannier bags that have some clothes in them and, and basic things that I'll need along the way. But most of the equipment and stuff like that is is in the car. You know, my clothing and stuff like that's in the car. And then our, you know, all the cameras and hard drives and 
everything that we need for the filming process is also in the car. And actually, and actually, this is this is what I really love is that I'm going on this trek and and I'm and I'm really lucky because I don't have to weigh my bike down too much. You know, a lot of people who do these long you know journeys by motorcycle, they have to put everything on their bike, and they end up getting you know they end up having a really heavy bike, and um, and I really think that limits the amount of of fun. Uh, that you can have when you're off-roading because uh, sometimes people are loading up their bikes, you know, to a great amount. And then if you get into the mud, it's over because with that extra weight, you'll know, you'll never be able to really control your wheels in any way, shape, or form. And they'll just be slipping and sliding all over the place. So so it's really kind of uh, important for me to make sure that we keep the bike kind of as light as possible so that I can actually ride the bike, um, you know, the way it was kind of meant, uh, especially when we get off-roading. And are you camping or are you staying in accommodations as you go? Well, when we're in civilization, uh, when we're on real roads and we're going through towns and stuff like that, we're definitely staying in, you know, truck stop hotels and, and, uh, and you know, just whatever is next to the side of the road. And that's really because we're filming and we need to be able to download footage and recharge batteries every night. You know, we've got all these mini cams and helmet cams and all these things that are constantly kind of rolling along every day. And, and we need a chance to go through that stuff and, and recharge everything. But then when you get into places like the Amazon where you've got these massive stretches with, with no hotels, no villages, no gas stations, yeah, you are out in the elements. And and in places like Tibet and India, you know, it was easy enough to bring a sleeping bag and a and a tent. But in um in Brazil the way to go was uh was hammock. So in the in the Amazon there were these um there were these internet point to point towers every 30 miles really uh, through the Amazon uh, carrying internet across the country and it didn't actually give us a mobile phone signal though uh, but the towers that they had uh, offered us a chance uh, for some shelter so what we would do is we would stop at these at these shelters every 30 miles and that ended up being about as much as we could do every day and we would um, tie hammocks from our SUV to the uh, to the tele- to the to the internet tower uh, and then put a tarp over the top, and we would actually sleep outside at night, but well off the ground, so that uh, any bugs and and animals would uh, would leave us alone. Wow, so kind of interesting that that's the only use you had for that technology while you're there. <laughs> I assume they don't have Wi-Fi on these. Oh no, there's nothing. I mean, um, you know, Brazil is a wonderfully connected country. Uh, you know, in the civilized parts where there's towns and highways, there's great you know phone access and. And for the people who followed our journey, you know, people who follow my Facebook page, they know that for 60 days in Brazil, you know, I had 60 daily updates letting people know where I started, where I finished, and the distance I traveled every day. Uh, and I do that while I'm while I'm on these journeys. And, and we built up a really nice following of people who are, are following, like, following my journey live. And that's great. But then there's this, you know, there's this one week, one, one and a half week dark period where, you know, we were in the Amazon and, and no one was able to get any updates. And, um, and that was, you know, the really the, the toughest part of the journey, um, you know, being blocked off by communications, not being able to let our friends and family know, you know, where we are, what's going on, and then having to sleep out in hammocks every night in the rain. And then, of course, the, the you know, the, the 30 miles a day of riding at, at uh, five miles an hour in the mud, falling, you know, 20 times. Um, just because you can't keep your bike up in, you know, knee deep and, and sometimes waist deep mud. 
Yeah, that's going to get to anybody. And then going to bed with your uh, all your gear wet, your clothes all wet, and no place to, to properly dry them. Was there any point on the whole thing where it sort of fell apart, where the crew and, and you just sort of, you know, came to, to loggerheads sort of thing? Well, the you know, this is one of the problems. If you close your if you close your eyes and think to yourself, who could I spend sixty days with <laughs> every day? Uh, you know, there's not a lot of people on that list, and and you know, you know, I was very lucky to to really enjoy riding with my brother uh, over these long distances, and and people are always amazed that when Colin and I did um, our Tough Rides China and Tough Rides India show, you know, we didn't argue at all, and um, and that was an amazement to me, but it was an amazement to a lot of other people as well. So. So who you pick to go with and, and the kind of mentality you bring into these journeys is really important. And, and my crew that I travel with have been with me not only on these motorcycle shows, but also on some of the other shows that I make. I make a trekking show um, called Extreme Treks, and I also make some shows for Discovery Channel. And I work with the same people all the time. So so my guys in Brazil were first class and, and uh, are very used to working with me and, and very used to being in really difficult and challenging situations. But with that being said, uh, there was a few days in the Amazon where, you know, the SUV kept getting stuck. Um, I kept falling on my motorcycle. You know, you're in the middle of nowhere and, and, and you know, these these tempers can flare and, and this hopelessness kind of does reach everyone and, and people can lose their lose their mind a little bit. And, and that's always the time where you have to, you know, stop, turn off all the engines, you know, and have a little sit down in a powwow and just, you know, talk out how everyone's feeling at the moment and, and what you, what we've all gotten ourselves into and, and how the best way to proceed is and just to make sure that we all have a, a stake and a say in how we move forward and making sure that everyone feels comfortable that their voice is being heard. And I think that that's something that's really important on these, you know, long, grueling trips is just making sure, um, you know, everyone's properly listened to and everyone has an opinion on how to move forward. And that's also why you keep the group really small because the more people... It just gets messier. Do the cameras still roll when you're when you're hitting that kind of stress point? Uh, they do if it's on me. Uh, sometimes we film if it's me and someone else on the crew. Uh, but if it's sometimes if it's all of us, we'll just turn that off and have a little have a little chat uh, to see you know how we're going to move forward. It has to be trying because you're going through a lot more stress than than what your crew is probably for the most part, except when they're getting their SUV stuck. And but there has to be this sort of feeling that they're going, well, it's your gig, <laughs> you know, you're the one that's uh, that's doing this. You you have to suffer. So almost like a uh, a thought process that you you're expected to suffer. There and there's, there's so there's quite a difference in the in the experience and in the and the suffering that you go through. Uh, that's true. So you know, the harder the journey uh, is for me personally. Uh, the better the show tends to be. So that's something that we're always looking looking at and looking forward to. And obviously I know that going into the journey and, and I know that each day, uh, you know, whenever I am in the rain or whenever I am in the mud and things like that, I, I know that this is kind of what people at home are really keen to see. And, and when I am having a difficult time, you know, that's that's when we need to keep the cameras rolling and, and making sure we, we document all of that. And, and I accept all that and that's part of the fun of it. And that's why... You know, I could very easily do these motorcycle trips without the camera team and and uh, and thoroughly enjoy them. But but uh, you know, I want to I want people to see what I go through so that they can think about maybe trying to do it on their own someday or or with their friends. And you know, I think the the reason I don't mind suffering on camera so much is because 
people do come up to me, you know, when I do talks or at motorcycle shows or, or give talks um, at geographical societies and stuff like that. I say, oh, you've inspired me to go do this on my next vacation and stuff like that. And I think, wow, you know, that's worth it, you know. And um, and that's really where, where it comes through is because people want to know, you know, where those dark dark moments are going to come from. And that's a little bit what, you know, where the entertainment comes from. Do you have any tips for anyone considering riding in the Amazon? Um, don't go alone uh, and be ready for for just mud and wetness. And, and you, you said it earlier, you know, when you're going through waist-deep and knee-deep um, mud for days on end, you know, everything just gets wet and uh, there's no place to dry it because you're just in this incredibly wet, steamy, humid environment. And, uh, and yeah, you're just putting on the same kind of clothes every day and, and just trying to work your way through it and, and it's just miserable but but in the moment it's miserable and, and you're just kind of biting your lip and fighting through but man when you come out on the other side you've grown uh, and you feel like you've really accomplished something and you feel like you've really seen something and I think that that's why I do it and I think that's why we all do it I mean why do we get on two wheels and, and do that really tough off-road stretch or why do we do that long trip that you know, we thought maybe we couldn't do it. It's because we want to explore. It's because we're looking for an adventure. And, and all of these things help us grow and develop in, in new and exciting ways. And, and that's what the motorcycle is our vehicle um, for that exploration and that growth. And, and that's what these trips do for me. And, and hopefully that's what the audience will uh, will get from it as well. Well, I look forward to seeing this, uh, this six-part series. Um, where can the listener find out more about it? So everyone can go to uh, just my Facebook page, which is uh, Ryan Pyle, or or you can go to www.ryanpyle.com. And the series is called Tough Rides. We've got Tough Rides China, Tough Rides India, and coming soon is Tough Rides Brazil. And we've got uh, books and Blu-ray DVDs and stuff like that on Amazon, and, and the show is on uh, available on iTunes as well. So you know we're we're working hard to get our show you know to people who really want it and we hope that uh, you know people can find it and, and enjoy uh, enjoy the adventure well Ryan thanks very much for coming on adventure rider radio and telling us about this and uh, we'll have to talk to you after your next adventure thank you very much for having me it was an absolute pleasure and uh, call me anytime I'm willing to willing to chat about motorcycles any day of the week I've been speaking with Ryan Pyle, and you can find out more about Ryan by visiting those websites he just gave you or our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and we'll have the link in our show notes. Valerie Thompson is often referred to as the Queen of Speed. She has a record of 217.7 mile per hour on her BMW S1000RR motorcycle. She's a member of the 200 mile per hour club. She's a seven times land speed record holder. We caught up with Valerie at her home in Scottsdale, Arizona.
I'm speaking with Valerie Thompson, seven-time land speed record holder and uh, a member of the the 200-mile-per-hour club. Valerie, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure, and, and you have so many, uh, so many accomplishments here as far as racing goes. I, I can't even list them all. Tell us a little bit about your your racing. Well, um, I have seven uh, land speed records, and uh, either from the Bonneville Salt Flats uh, or from a one mile stop standing events like the Texas Mile, Ohio Mile, and um, top speed two hundred seventeen point seven miles per hour on the BMW S one thousand RR. My previous experience has been in drag racing, and I just converted to the BMW world in uh, 2012. So before all this, before the racing, you were working in a bank. I did. <laughs> I loved it, though. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say it was driving you nuts. It was so mundane that you had to get out and do something else. But you loved the bank. Yes, I did love the bank. It was my first job, my first real job right after high school. What got you into racing? Well, I, I did a little street racing, and I was told I was a little out of control on my Harley Davidson Fat Boy, and uh, went to the racetrack a couple months later, a few of us, and I actually, you know, made some hot laps, and I thought, man, this is a great environment. I love this. Kept going back and back and returned, and uh, I, I've never left since. <laughs> when you said they, your friends said you were a little out of control, what do they mean by that? Well, I was always trying to be the leader of the pack and I was always trying to go faster than they were and um, they kept trying to stuff me in the back. <laughs> so what is it about going fast on the motorcycle that does it for you? Um, when you are on the racetrack, you know, that's a complete different uh, story versus being on the street and doing that. I don't do that anymore. I've learned my lesson, but, um, you know, just to go fast, it, I mean, it's a whole different ball of wax when you're on a racetrack. Your mind is set, your focus, your concentration is uh, 200% there. And uh, it's just an amazing feeling. Well, we're talking about really, uh, you know, top end racing here now that you're into this, um, uh, doing your speeds of 217.7, I think. Is, and now, is that your top speed, 217.7? Yes. yes, that's my top speed so far. Yeah. Amazing, amazingly fast. How do they measure that? That's over a one-mile stop standing course. So that's what you starting out at a stop. They give you the green light. You go, um, and at times you right from that point. Yes, and it's a it's done by a timing association, so it's well documented, well clocked. Um, it's an it's an event called the Texas Miles where I did that, and I did that in um, October of two thousand and fourteen. It's such a great event out there, and. Uh, Beeville, Texas is uh, such an awesome place to be at, and uh, the organization is super, and, uh, you know, it you get going down there. It's fun, especially when you get a nice little tailwind. It's very historic, isn't it? I mean, that's where all the land speed records have been, have been set. In Bonneville, yes, that is true. Bonneville is a very different, um, uh, it's... It's a, you know, Bonneville is Bonneville. It's where a lot of uh, cars and motorcycles go to set huge records. And uh, either you can get a AMA or FIM uh, world record. And uh, so it's, it's pretty much a, you know, a special place for a lot of us racers to go to the Bonneville and to break records. How do you go from taking your Harley and seeing how fast you can go to the point you're at now? 
it's all about, you know, the passion for that two wheels. It's all about, you know, appreciating what you have and what you're doing at the time of meaning appreciate, you know, you have two wheels and that's all what you have. Uh, there's no protection. There's no, except for your race gear. Um, it's, when you try it, it's it's kind of it's an addiction, you know. It's like a drug addiction of speed. Uh, the I can do better. I can do better, and I'm always the one to, you know, challenge myself, take me to new uh, higher levels, and put new high levels um, and goals in front of myself, and to conquer them. It's like, wow. When you go 100 miles per hour, you want to say, okay, I want to go 120. Now I want to go 150. And once you get 150, 160, you want to go 200. And um, ever since I had been starting, I always said, I always want to go 200. <laughs> What's the difference between 130 mile an hour, which maybe, uh, you know, a bunch of people have experienced, to 217? It's a, it's a different program. It's, you know, it it's completely different. Um, there is so much you more that you have to pay attention to. Um, you know, the focus is much more intense. Um, you know, you have to have the perfect race conditions and, you know, in a perfect world, we all want perfect race conditions, um, and the perfect wind, but, uh, it's, it's just a different ball and wax. I mean, I'm learning as I'm going and, uh, as I've reached the 200 mile per hour mark, uh, going to 209 is is even a cha- change for me, uh, a challenge. And to go 217 is like when I got at the end of the uh, race at the finish line, I was like, gosh, I had a hard time slowing down. And I had no idea how fast I even went because my, uh, you know, gauge, I don't pay attention to. I'm not worried about how fast I'm going. I pay attention to all the other things that I need to, um, you know, my gauges, my RPMs and where I'm at on the racetrack and my body position and trying to be one with the bike to create all this aerodynamic to go faster. Um, and I had a hard time slowing down. I was like, that's weird. Maybe I need new brakes. <laughs> well, I went faster than I've ever gone. So that was the reason why. <laughs> So it's not like, I mean, I think a lot of times people look at this and think that, oh, it just takes somebody with the gumption to crack the throttle and go and let the bike go that fast. But that's not the case, is it, when it comes to high-speed riding? It's really not. I mean, your mind has to be right into it. You have to be right in this moment and you have to give it all. It's either, I've been told it's either you're pregnant or you're not pregnant. So you can't do it halfway. You have to do it all the way. And that's called full throttle. Right. And will the bike go faster than what you've done? Well, we've done some, uh, we're working on some improvements. My bike right now is at Iron Horse uh, BMW dealership, which is in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, BMW has donated this super fast super bike engine to our race program. And uh, we are uh, hoping that we can go faster than our 217 on pavement. At the Bonneville Salt Flats, we're really hoping that we can, uh, you know, go over, you know, 215, 220. We need we need high speeds out of this, and we need a good racetrack. And the Salt Flats right now is uh, the race conditions of the track is not looking so good. We've already had one cancellation of Speed Week this year that was scheduled for August 9th, 8th through the uh, 15th. 
and uh, just because of the, you know, mother nature. What is it about you that the speed doesn't bother you? Because people, a lot of people, most people, I would say, me included, you know, you get to a certain speed and you know, okay, that's feeling just a little too fast at this point. You clearly don't have that. Well, I, I always have said that, and I've heard this from other racers, is that speed is not uh, an issue. It, it Speed is like, okay, so that, that's the speed I'm going, and you look down, and then you just don't pay attention to it. It's, it's the last thing on my mind. I am, I am more in control of paying attention to my RPM gauges, you know, my body position, uh, you know, what the bike is doing, if the tire is spinning, um, Speed is the easy part of my whole job, to be honest. When I cross that finish line, I'm more worried about shutting down and stopping um, safe and successfully than I am about how fast I went. Uh, my uh, speedometer it only says that I'm going XYZ fast, but when you, it doesn't matter what my speedometer says, it matters what the time and association gives me a ticket, my time slip. And that's what really matters. And that's the only speed that they'll go by. Valerie, I really admire your passion for motorcycles. And where can people find out more about you? Well, you can find me on my website at ValerieThompsonRacing.com and, uh, or, uh, which is, has uh, click buttons to my Facebook and also my Twitter page. Valerie, you'd mentioned sponsors. What is your list of sponsors for this season? Well, my uh, greatest sponsors are Quicksilver Power Sports Lubricants, BMW Motorrad with HP Race Parts, and SeaTac uh, Battery Chargers, NP Moto, and Akropovich, and Alpha Racing. Valerie, thank you very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you for having me. Thanks. I've been speaking with Queen of Speed, Valerie Thompson. You can find out more about Valerie by dropping by her website, ValerieThompsonRacing.com. Coming up next, Jonathan Gibson returns from his year-and-a-half journey on his 1969 Royal Enfield. But first, I'm going to take a minute and talk to you about something you may not have heard of at this point. It's called the Good Adventure Company. So the Good Adventure Company is claiming to be the first motorcycle outfitter with the mission of making the world a better place to live and ride. That's a big goal. Um, how do they do it? Well, here's what they're doing. They're donating profits to sustainable nonprofit organizations, um, specifically ones that help uh, children and families. The one they're supporting right now is Lost for a Reason, which you've probably seen uh, on Facebook or maybe a sticker on somebody's motorcycle. It's getting to be quite popular and is an excellent cause. They're trying to be soft luggage experts. They sell only the best in the business, and they only sell stuff that they've used and tested themselves. So this is these are people who are standing behind their, their products. They're going out and trying this stuff before they're selling it. They handle Wolfman luggage, Giant Loop, uh, and Durastan. And they also sell Hydno tires, which they are saying that they consider to be one of the best 50-50 bike tires around. And, of course, a lot of people know Hydno tires have a, a reputation for longevity. They do run a long time before they wear out. Also, they're going to be doing guided motorcycle adventures in the Colorado backcountry in August and Mexico's Copper Canyon in Mexico in February 2016. They offer a 10% yearly dividend free shipping on most items, and they use their proceeds responsibly. They consider their customer service to be the best in the business, and that's what they're going for. So drop by the website, check it out. It's www.good-adv.com. That's www.good-adv.com. 
ADV.com. And when you go there, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Jonathan Gibson has crossed his own finish line just recently. On his website, it says the planned route from Sydney to London, January 2014 until whenever. And at last, his journey has come to an end. And now we know that whenever is July 19th, 2015. Jonathan traveled solo for a year and a half on his 1969 Royal Enfield, starting out in Sydney, Australia and ending at the Ace Cafe in London, England. Last December, we aired an interview with Jonathan when he was in Mumbai, India, and he shared stories of his adventures until that point. Now, Jonathan tells the rest of his story from London, UK, as he gets ready to pack up all his gear, his bike, and himself to head back to Australia, home to share his tales with his friends and family at last. I'm speaking with Jonathan Gibson, who just left the Ace Cafe in celebration of completing his trip. Now, you remember Jonathan from a previous episode. He's riding his 1969 Royal Enfield, same one his grandfather used to have, from Sydney to London. Jonathan, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, mate. It's always good to speak to you. How are you? Very well, and might I say congratulations. Thank you. uh, I'm really grateful. Uh, I'm quite surprised. A lot of people seem to be less surprised than me because I think of anyone. I obviously it was always going to be a bit tricky. It was probably more tricky than I planned. But so the congratulations. uh, I thank you. Well, you know, it might seem like an easy trip to some. Somebody would say, you know, that's a fairly straightforward ride, but not Mm -hmm. on the 1969 Royal Enfield. I'm trying to think of what you said in that original interview. You said something about, oh, uh, I think it was, you described the Royal Enfield as maintenance maintenance heavy. heavy. Yeah, maintenance (laughs) heavy. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's still very maintenance heavy. Um, I, I, I would even kind of trying to think of a slightly more heavy word than that. But it, it was difficult, and I always knew that the, the maintenance-heavy aspect of the, the old bike, you know, like all old bikes, would be, would be a substantial part of the trip. I didn't probably factor in the fact that that would probably become almost the defining part of the trip, was just getting this bike still rolling, still getting further down the road. Well, let's talk statistics to begin with. So mm-hmm. how far and how long? Uh, it was 27,000 kilometers. Uh, and I believe it was 490 days on the road from Bris- Sorry, from Sydney to London. And how many of those days were riding as opposed to how many were fixing? Oh, that would be a good number to ride. My, on an average day, I do about 200 kilometers. So how, how many is that? That's, that's still a fair few days on the ride. But I'd say most days were actually off the bike, fixing the bike, waiting for parts. Um, I had a few good runs through Europe, but most of the time there was always seemed to be a delay of sort, whether it was bureaucracy or more common motorcycle parts. Apologies for the siren. And of course, yeah, I was going to say we can hear that you're in London, you get the sirens going in the background. <laughs> for, first, for those who don't know um, or, or don't remember the story, just refresh our memory. Why did you choose to, to ride this 1969? Uh, basically, I always liked really old bikes. And I mean, obviously, you read Ted Simons. And uh, you, I felt like reading a lot of his stories and, and even other travelers, whether it was, uh, you know, Nathan Millwood or Ed March, the the times that they were stopped on the side of the road, whether through a mechanical issue or whether just through a, a punctured hole or whatever it happened to be, this, the slow travel for them really opened up a whole lot of opportunities and experiences that they might not have had otherwise. That idea was quite appealing, so I decided to uh, try and 
take that concept and push it through another passion of mine, which is old bikes. Um, I'm the fifth generation to ride Royal Enfields. Uh, my grandfather rode a, a, a similar vintage Enfield to what I have, and I decided to try and take what was basically the same bike that he had at my age and take that from Sydney to London, as I said, over 490 days. And your grandfather's still alive. He, he knows what you're doing. He was Yeah, uh... my, my grandfather, he's, he's over 80. He's, he's a bit old at the moment, but he's been on Instagram. He's been on Facebook uh, getting updates. And even when I arrived in London, there was a video waiting for me, uh, him, in, him bedside because he's quite ill at the moment, drinking a scotch and, and toasting my rival, which was, was a pretty great feeling. Well, you'd even mentioned to me about um, the times where you, where you sort of were getting fed up with it and your grandfather kept you going. Yeah, I mean, there were so many times I was close to throwing in the towel. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, everyone who's done these trips, they can kind of appreciate it. You have some times that are really quite difficult. And whether it was a mechanical issue or there were some bureaucracy issues, I had some issues with customs in, in Turkey, uh, trying to get some motorcycle parts in. And it was very tempting just to go, you know what, I can get home very quickly and very easily and relax. And uh, a few times the grandfather... You know, my plan was to maybe put the trip on hold for a little bit. My grandfather goes, well, I'm not getting any younger, Jonathan. Probably not going to be around for a whole lot longer. I want to see you finish the trip. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Better get the tools out and get back on the bike. So he gave you the impetus to, to keep yeah. going, which worked yeah. out great, right? Look, I mean, it, it, it got me across the line. It, it did, that's for sure. Um, so I'm really grateful for that in the end. What, what sort of trouble were you having with customs? I basically, uh, I ordered about $700 Australian worth of parts to Istanbul. So this was, a, gosh, what was it, new, new, new uh, valves, new piston, new rings, a, f- a fairly large time, new timing gear, a large chunk of parts. I got it sent to a French shop in Istanbul. So I was waiting for this package to arrive in Istanbul for a few days. I understood that it arrived. It was just waiting to clear customs. Long story short, the customs believed that it was a commercial quantity of goods that was going to be onwards sold and it wasn't for private use. And he, as a result, because it was inappropriately marked, I couldn't get that package released from customs in the designated time, which means they then basically claimed all of these Enfield parts. And it, it was particularly frustrating because he felt like just going up to the guy and saying, look at my motorcycle. These, these aren't going to be onwards sold. They need all of these parts. It's not commercial quantity goods. They're, they're actually just, just for me. I just ride a really old motorcycle. Um, so the situations like that are pretty frustrating. And how did you get through that? Did you finally convince them by showing them your bike or something? No, that the package is gone. Uh, unfortunately, what I did is I managed to do a few more bodge repairs and then limped the bike very slowly and very slowly. Uh, I literally had to push it up a few hills due to the lack of compression and horsepower um, to Bulgaria. And once in Bulgaria, there's a, a great motor camp there, kind of northeast, and I got the parts rebought sent onwards to there and i did the rebuild there oh wow so you lost your parts there the some official in turkey has them some part some official in turkey has a whole bunch of motorcycle parts for a very old enfield and i i hope he uses them or ties them to his feet and drowns that's fine (laughs) so jonathan tell me now you did mention there that uh the inspiration for this trip was when you're reading through stories like ted simon um and saying that the the breakdowns make the trip and a lot of people say that on here a a lot of people do so did you have the same experience or or was it too frequent or was it breakdown overload what was it like for you as far as in in an overall sense at this point looking back did the breakdowns make the trip there are no two ways about this. Would not have been the same trip. It would have not have been the same enjoyable experience that it was 
if I wasn't broken down, nearly all of my good stories start with I was pushing the bike on the side of the road. <laughs> and that, for some reason, that's, you know, you go back and occasionally look through some of my blog posts, published and unpublished, and it's they nearly always start with, yes, I was pushing my bike on the side of the road when X happened. I, um, I as I said, I, I probably didn't appreciate just how much of a part of the trip that would be. I am not particularly running ahead to get, get on my bike and chuck a U-turn. That said, I... I wouldn't have done the trip any other way. So what's it like to ride an old bike that distance for a trip like this? Um, and wh- what goes wrong on it? Like, what, what are your, what's the biggest problem with it? I, I think it's just the general fatigue of the metal. And as we keep talking about Ted Simons, at least I just went back and rode Jupiter's again uh, for the countless time. And he talks about how in the first 5,000 kilometers, sorry, 5,000 miles, he had to do a top-end rebuild. I mean, that that's, was the... The, the, the pinnacle of technology at its time, you've then got to add an extra 40, 50 years of just general stress and fatigue to the metal. So while you can replace most of the parts, little things just start to wear, bolts wear, the holes in the crank start to wear. And so you just, it's just an old bike and that's just a part of it. You just continually have to be on top of it. You, you ride for an hour, you check the oil, you see if it's making any funny sounds, you get back on the bike. And each night you, you check a few things and you keep going. And so when these bolts are, are getting worn and, the, and you're dealing with a lot of strip threads and broken things. Yeah, and the, I mean, it's just, as I said, the, the strip threads go. And while, as I said, you can replace a bolt, you don't always have the, the heli coils. It's not easy just to, to basically rethread some of these things simply. And so you, you do a bodge fix and then that kind of gets you a bit further down the road. But then you do another bodge fix and then another part goes. And then eventually things start to, as I said, they, they just get old and they, they break. That's all a part of it. And the, I just said, I learned a lot on the road, but even towards the end, I had a situation in Baritz where I was probably about four days riding. Baritz is obviously the southwest of France. I was about four days away from finishing. I did a, I did a repair job. It wasn't a fantastic repair job. I knew it wasn't a great repair job. I just wanted to kind of keep going. And I, I tracked along. And I did make a mistake there. That was utterly my fault. I basically blocked an, an oil passageway and starved the entire engine of oil. Uh, so a few kilometers later, the, the engine blew up on me. Situations like that are pretty painful because you know that you've just done a quick, lazy fix. You're on the side of the road when you really should have maybe taken your time and done it correctly. And so that was always painful, especially when you knew it was your case. Very expensive lesson, but a lesson nevertheless. Plus it made a good story. Especially when you're, you're, you're just days away from finishing too. So how far did that set, set you back? Uh, basically three weeks. So I had to do a, a full engine rebuild. So that's dropping the engine, splitting the case, replacing the bottom end, getting it all back in together and, and then limping onwards. That had to hurt. Yeah, it was pretty painful. I said, you're so close to the finish line. I organized things with obviously Ace Cafe and some friends and accommodation and parties. And then you have to kind of do that awkward Facebook message to a few friends saying, hey, guys, going to be a little bit late. By the way, do you have any friends in France who might have a garage I can work in for a week? How do you find the, the, the grapevine is for, as you were going along, obviously you did a lot of repairs on this trip. Did you find you were always uh, coming across people that would let you work in their garage and offer you a place to stay? Yeah, I was, I was very, very rarely short of a place. I think the, the old bike as well is a, a great catalyst for that. A lot of people see, uh, I mean, you, a lot of people see the old bike and they naturally want to talk about it and they hear about where you came from. And there were situations in Serbia where you'd come across I met this, this random guy on the street as you do. My bike wasn't broken down at this point, but he came up to talk about the bike. And he goes, hey, I've got a, 
got a workshop around the corner. And, oh, it's brilliant. We go to the workshop, went to the workshop, and it was the most high-end fabrication facility for old BMWs and CZs bikes that I've ever seen. It was just utterly impressive. We managed to fabricate a whole bunch of parts that I'd once again done a quick bodge fix, but it wasn't particularly great. And yeah, as I said, the I've never really been short of a garage or someone to help. It's as a lot of people say, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't have made this far on this trip. I wouldn't have made it too far out of Sydney if people hadn't helped me. Um, and I'll be always grateful for that. And that is a part of the adventure, I guess. Jonathan, if you were going to do another trip similar to this, would you ride another old bike? No, God, no. I'm going to get a bike. I'm going to press that button. And it's going to start every <laughs> single time. And I can't wait. Um, no, I, I love the old bike, but I'm looking forward to putting it in retirement. And it's, like even the new Enfields, you sit on the new Enfields and you press that button and you know it's going to start. And it's such a nice feeling in the morning going, okay, I need to get X kilometers. And you just know you're going to be able to do it. Which for better or for worse, you just don't get on the old bike. You get on the bike, it's like, all right, what are we going to do today? Is the bike going to start? No, it's not going to start. All right, what are we doing today instead? So as I said, I, I'm looking forward to retiring the Enfield. It's true, isn't it? I mean, you, you almost take it for granted with a modern bike. You just expect it to get to to fire up and go. And then when it doesn't, it's a big shock for you. But with you, it's the, <laughs> yeah. it's the other way around. You probably get out and if it starts up first thing, that's a shock. Whoa, we're going somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's like obviously compression's down if it's starting that easy. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, that catches me out a few times. I remember like, it's two way, especially what happened a lot in uh, in Asia where people have a natural tendency to to touch your bike and start playing with it when you're not around. I, you'd, you'd park and you try and kick the bike. You try and kick the bike and it won't start. So you, you check the plugs, you check the electronics. You've basically got you know the tank off, ready to pull the top off, and then you look over and the kill switch is on, and you're you're just like, oh. and like I wish I wish I could say that only happened once, but it happened probably about half a dozen times where I was the tools were all out and I was working on the bike before I realised the kill switch had been hit. Because somebody just flipped it when they were looking at it. Someone's been looking at it. Someone's flipped it, and yeah, it is what it is, though. All part of it. So what happens now? You're in London, in the UK, and your trip has come to an end. It's all over. That had to be um, quite the letdown in one way. A relief, I guess, in some ways, but a huge letdown. And now what do you do with your bike and what do you do with you? Mate, it's incredibly surreal. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a letdown, but it's you work so hard towards something and then you cross the line, you take a deep breath, and you, you do start to look over the next hill and go, oh, I wonder what's over there. Um, but the, the immediate plan is that the bike is staying in London. Uh, Royal Enfield, a uh, pretty heavy sponsor of a festival called the, the Goodwood Revival. And so I'll be coming back um, to Goodwood Revival, my motorcycle stay in London, and then I'll ship the bike back home to Australia. And it's it's very far from being, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's, it's very unroadworthy. It's very unsafe. It leaks a lot of oil. The lights don't work. So I'll basically have to fix the bike up to more appropriate level back in Australia and, and put it back on the road. And then I'll yeah, it'll be a good little pot around town bike, I believe. And maybe the odd, you know, thousand kilometer trip here and there. And what's next? Man, that's a tough question. I haven't been to North America yet. I, I've done a I've done a crack around the southern end of South America. I'd love to I would love to do New York to LA and take in some of that and then sneak up towards Alaska and take in some of Canada. Uh, it's it's very appealing. And if I can make it work, I will. So that's that's in the back of the mind at this point. We'll see how quickly it comes to fruition. Jonathan, did I see you've got a bunch of sponsors on your website? I went to the website before we talked this time, and, and sure. I think things have changed for you. How did that happen? Uh, people have contacted me. I've contacted people. Um, they generally kind of, obviously, at the start of your trip, you, you don't really have a whole lot to really provide. 
Uh, I had a few people come on board earlier on the piece, which is, and it's 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 really, especially when they kind of have faith that you could be potentially a good story. Uh, later on, it when you start to build a social media following, it became a little bit easier to approach people, and even in turn, some people uh, approached me uh, because I am doing this for charity. Usually, the, the pitch was they would provide uh, gear that I would need for the trip, and in return make a donation to the charity uh, that I'm raising money for, which is a Beyond Blue. And that worked out really well for me. Obviously, I got the gear that I needed and people, you know, they, they get their content out there and Beyond Blue gets the money. Tell us about the charity. Uh, the charity focuses on mental health initiatives. I, I lost a couple of people quite close to me to suicide. So it was quite a personal charity for me. And I thought that, you know, if you're going to do a trip like this, if I can do it and raise some money at the same time, that all the better. Yeah. And how, does, how has that worked out? It's worked out okay. I'm pretty close to hitting my final goal. Uh, I've got a few things lined up back in Australia, which will hopefully kick a few bits of money in. Uh, if people ever want to make a donation, there's a few different levels of support, but the, one of the popular ones, if people want, I can actually send them a, a broken part of the motorcycle and a photo of where it broke. Um, so <laughs> that a few is people, cool. That, that's <laughs> neat. If, if people want an interesting and weird souvenir, I've got, I've got plenty of broken motorcycle parts to go around, um, which people seem to get a kick out of. Well, that's great. And where do they go to for that? Uh, you can find it all through my website. And you can send me an email or you can just make a direct donation. If you go to www.theanswerisalwaysyes.co, um, I need to fix a few settings on my website. So you do actually need to type in the, the www.theanswer. Um, otherwise, you can just Google it. And what is the answer is always yes? Yeah, basically, I had a, a good Brazilian friend back in, in Brisbane. When I was living in Brisbane. He was a mad motorcyclist and didn't speak English uh, very well. And so whenever we are working together, it would be like, you know, have you collected the glasses? Has the floor been cleaned? Um, are you having a beer? And he'd always kind of struggle with the question a little bit. And I'd be like, mate, the answer is yes. And so that kind of became a recurring joke. One day he went back to South America and he called me up. And he goes, mate, I want to ride motorcycles around South America. Do you want to come? And so for me, it was like, yeah, the answer is yes. It's, mate, it's always going to be yes. Um, so that kind of became a recurring theme when we're riding motorcycles that, mate, just give it a crack, see what happens. That's really neat. And Jonathan, is there a book or a, or a film going to come from this? There's a, an online web series that's being produced by someone else, uh, as in there's a, a gentleman who kind of flew in occasionally to film, and he's taken my basically bulk footage and turned it into something far more refined. So the first video has been released. You can find that uh, at Stories of Bike uh, Answers. Or you can find it on the Facebook page as well. So if you Google Stories of Bike Enfield or Stories of Bike Answers, he makes usually more custom motorcycle uh, videos. But this is his first kind of big international project he's undertaken. So there is a the web series being made and there is talk of a book. But if that happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Your podcasts have always been a, a huge – I look forward to it every week on the trip. That was for sure. Well, it's really neat. I like the idea of you riding along there on your adventure, listening to other people's adventures. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much. Once again, congratulations on completing your trip, and we'll talk to you soon. Mate, always good to chat. I'll see you when I see you. I've been speaking with Jonathan Gibson as he sits in the UK and gets ready to go back to Australia from completing his trip on his 1969 Royal Enfield. You can find out more about him by visiting his website, www.theanswerisalwaysyes.com. Or, of course, you can drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio, and look at the show notes for this episode. 
This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. You can also sign up for free for their weekly e-rider newsletter at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Moto Machines offers luggage systems, protection, windshields, custom ABS plastic parts, and more for over 700 different models dating back to the 1970s. Moto Machines carries the widest selection of luggage available on the market, and all accessories are bolt-on ready for a custom fit. Visit them at motomachines.com. That's motomachines.com. about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio now you're going to want to drop back next week because we got another great show already coming together for next week you're going to be hearing from a guy who left on a small adventure i think it was a few months and he's gone for i forget what it was now like 14 years it's going to be a good one and probably one you haven't heard before adventure rider radio is made possible through canoe west media Special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin. Don't forget to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Check out the show notes for this episode and all the episodes we've done. You can go through there and download any one of them for free. Look at all the back episodes, a lot of information, a lot of great people. And like everybody nowadays, we are on social media. You can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Twitter at ADVRiderRadio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, this is Lois Price of Lois on the Loose, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 